may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2u.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counselling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. That's jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Shalom, Jono, and welcome back from the Holy Land. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been uh, it's been a few weeks since we Thanks. last recorded. Um, tonight we're doing uh, Psalm chapter 9, but uh, we've taken a little bit of a break because, yes, you went to the Holy Land and then I went to the Holy Land. And I had a, I had an incredible time. I'm so so curious to hear how it went. Well, it was it was. I mean, it had everything in it. We we traveled from, uh, we went right up north, right up into the Golan, in fact. And did you uh, wa- did you wave to, did you wave to Hezbollah? <laughs> we waved to Hezbollah. We waved okay. to the Syrian army as well. Uh, in fact, you know what? We we went to the Valley of Tears. It was an amazing experience up there. You know what? One place that we went that, that we hadn't been before as well. I mean, the Valley of Tears was one such place. Uh, another one was the uh, Nimrod's uh, Fortress. Uh, amazing structure. So we got to see a lot of things that we didn't see on uh, previous tours. Another one, which was just amazing, Michael, was we, we made it to Hebron. Uh, I've never been there before. We were very blessed to be able to meet up with David Wilder, who... Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. And he, he took us around. Uh, we only had a few hours, and we could have really done with maybe six hours. I'm, I'm sure he would have kept us very, very busy, but it was uh, an amazing experience to be there in Hebron. Not far from there, we also dropped in at Susia. That was a, that was a new uh, place as well. I've never been there. It sounds like this year's tour was different than last year and so you know people should not think that you're doing the same thing every year and why bother no. going well that's exactly people right last <laughs> come back year. again and again yeah no it's so true because the tour before or the year before uh i mean this this tour had something like 70 percent of the people on this tour were from the previous tour so we had to mix it up and that's the great thing about israel is that there are so many options so many things to do that are high on the list, uh, locations to visit, and, uh, and, 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 you know, biblically speaking, you know, biblically relevant uh, destinations, there's just so many to choose from that you can mix it up and, and it's, it'll be different every time. This coming tour will be different again. And, uh, because it's the, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna let it cut out of the bag, but you know, it, it will be, uh, the hundredth year anniversary of the Australian Light Horse Brigade charge, a successful victorious charge to, uh, liberate Beersheba, uh, which, uh, eventually opened the door to the surrender of the Ottomans only, only, uh, days later so i did not know i did not know that the aussies liberated Beersheba. it was the aussies it absolutely was i did not know it's you know (laughs) i don't know why we don't fly that flag more often we we're kind of consumed with uh um stories such as uh terrible defeats like um gallipoli uh, that that sort kind of we let that define our uh military struggles and uh, challenges and achievements um, but really, I really do think it should be World War One. It should be uh, uh, what we were able to do uh, in Beersheba because not since um, Alexander the Great had an army and cavalry of that size moved through the desert successfully uh, and did what we did. 
So it's it's an amazing story. We're going to be there uh, next year for on the day for the hundredth year um, anniversary commemorations, official commemorations. So I'm really excited about that, and therefore it's going going to be very very different. Um, the kickoff of next year's tour. But look, I, I loved is, that, it. It was that's, great. That's awesome. It's it is it's, it, it really awesome. is. It's a major part of Israel's history, and uh, and I really want to put that back on the map and um, and and make that known. So I'm looking forward to that. But it was great, you know, seeing people uh, that I haven't seen for for a while, and um, uh, you know, going around with with Tovia. It was really good and a wonderful group of people. Uh, it's always wonderful to be back in the land, and it was sad to leave. I can't wait until I, I go back next year. And so um, we would love to have uh, people join us. Of course, uh, you can go to truthtoyou.org and click on Israel Tour. 2017 and you can get the details there we would love to have you join us next year and it's not too early to sign up it's not actually you know what there's an early bird discount so if you sign up before 2017 you get uh five percent off so uh look for the details on the webpage truth to you.org truth number two letter you.org we would love to have you join us oh my goodness so eventful wow hmm but we and are. That was but, probably just a taste of what happened. It was just a taste of what happened. There was some uh, amazing experiences. It was it was great to get to, to again to places like Shiloh. Uh, it was uh, wonderful to to um, visit uh, familiar places in Jerusalem, the old city. Uh, you know what? We <laughs> we went back to the Temple Mount sifting project, and I thought for sure I was going to be famous because I found a pearl. <laughs> I uncovered a pearl out of. I'm not kidding. Out of the uh, out of the Temple Mount uh, material, we were sifting through, and I, I was there with Tovia, and we found it. And we were all in awe, and we thought, "Oh, for sure, this is going to make the newspapers." And I went over to the archaeologist, and I said, "Check it out." And he looked at it, and he said, "Yep, made of plastic. <laughs> a pearl, of, a pearl of not great price. It was, not, it was totally counterfeit. Uh, certainly not ancient. That was an interesting experience. Another interesting experience was being at the wall at the hotel, praying and having a, a pigeon leave a little present on my kipper. It's good luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! Okay. Uh, anyway, you've been to the Holy Land. Been to the Holy Land. It was just great stuff. Now that we are continuing in, our, look, we might not even get through chapter. Let's see how we go, chapter nine. But we're continuing in our series, exploring the Book of Psalms, chapter by chapter, and asking the questions: Who composed the Psalm? Uh, what is it about? And and what was happening in the life of the author at the time of the composition? How does it apply to us today? Also, you know, when applicable, what would Christianity have us believe about each Psalm? How does that deviate from the original intent now right off the bat <laughs> rabbi skovac oi now there is there is some opinion that perhaps chapter 9 and chapter 10 belong together there's no way that we're going to do that <laughs> we may not even get through uh chapter 9 uh altogether in this uh, episode because it starts like this and, and, you know, when it comes to Christianity, at least in my New King James Study Bible, there's no, really no connection made. There's no real cross-references, nothing of substance. But I'm surprised because it, it starts like this. It says, uh, to the chief musician, to the tune of, quote, death of the son, a psalm it's of David. It's a happy tune. Oh, it's a happy tune. 
<laughs> now look, the, the, tune is, the tune is called "The Death of the Sun." Well, this is this is at least what the what what this translation would suggest, and I would have thought right there uh, that Christianity would have jumped upon this and made the most out of it, but it doesn't seem to be so. And is it because uh, the the translation "Death of a Son" is definitive, or maybe maybe it's not? Can you right there? Let's jump into that. Well, I mean, I think it's obvious that you know, first of all. There is, as we'll get into tonight, a, a tremendous problems translating this first verse. Mm. Um, and, you know, if we go with that translation, right, that um, either that the tune itself is called Death of the Sun or, you know, it, it's um, uh, I can easily read it in Hebrew. This is, a, you know, for the chief musician, for the conductor regarding or about the death of the sun, mm. the death of the sun. So, it doesn't have to be a tune that's called that, but it could be that this is a psalm um, given to the conductor um, for or regarding about the death of the sun. So, you could see how um, Christians would be drawn to this. I think the problem, though, is that um, you know the rest of the psalm doesn't seem to bear out any uh, connection to the Christian messianic mm. concept. Um, so it would sort of, you know, it's like it reminds me of Psalm 30, where it begins by saying it's a psalm, you know, dedicated to the dedication of the temple. Um, it, it's a song for the, the dedication of the temple, and then you read the whole psalm. There's not one word about having anything to do with a temple, and so you know, you wonder like, what's going on here? Why is this, you know, psalm called a dedication of the temple? Does there's no follow through? Mm. And so, and when we get to Psalm 30, hopefully in, you know, a few weeks, um, we'll discuss that. It's a fascinating question, but I think that here that would present the same kind of difficulty, meaning that if this is seen as uh, a psalm about, um, you know, the death of the son, referring to the son of God from a Christian point of view, mm. um, you know, the, the, the rest of the psalm, 20 verses uh, further, don't doesn't give you, you know, a lot of material to work with. That, well, doesn't substantiate or corroborate that kind of reading. Mm. So that is probably why they they just remain silent in terms of this. And they do; they really, really do. I mean, I've got my uh, study notes in front of me. I've got the cross references, and for the most part, really, it's, there's there's nothing there. But uh, but that's the way it begins. Uh, verse two: I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell. Of all your marvelous works, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Fair enough? Fair enough. Okay. I'm not going to, uh, you know, the translation here for the most part is pretty straightforward. Okay. We're happy with I that. I say for the, most, for the most part. We'll get back to <laughs> the Verse 4, when my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. You have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Michael. You know, like your Christian commentaries, I'll be silent at this point. Okay. So far, we're, <laughs> we're doing well. Verse 7. Yeah. O enemy, O enemy, destructions are finished forever. I've got an exclamation mark there. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory is perished, but the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Pausing. 
<laughs> We're still good? You know, it, it, your reading is gorgeous. Keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The, the Lord will also be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. That's interesting, isn't it? When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble for those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. I'm going to keep going. It says, the, uh, the nations have sunk down in a pit which they made, in a net which they hid, and their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. And then it has this curious little word here, which is higeon, uh, I think is, is the way it's pronounced. Uh, the translation that I have here is meditation. It's just a word that stands alone and it says selah. The wicked shall be turned. Now get this, Michael. The wicked shall be turned into hell is what I've got. Oh, boy. Boy, in the, uh, in the Christian translation. And all the nations that forget God. For they, uh, for the, and this is also curious. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. There, uh, the expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord! Do not let men prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. There it is. That's. Uh a beautiful reading, and as I was following in, um, I have a Jewish translation called um, A Time of Favor, mm-hmm. um, which is by Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Iskowitz. Um, it's not that different, um, and I think the general content of this psalm, you know, when you read it, um, you know, it doesn't seem that mysterious, really. Um, it seems for the most part to be talking about um, thanking God for, you know, his, uh, you know, uh, saving us, rescuing us, mm-hmm. thanking God for his wonders, thanking God for the destruction of our enemies, um, the, the, you know, for the saving of Israel, um, you know, that all these basically testify to God's justice, that God, um, you know, works to deliver those who know his name. Um, what else goes on here that, um, that there's an assurance that the, you know, poor and the oppressed will in the end be rescued, you know, that ultimately the wicked are going to be taken care of, um, you know, and that there'll be a future salvation as well. Mm -hmm. You know, more or less, that's what's going on here. Um, you know, you can have slight deviations between the translations, but, it seems pretty straightforward that that's you know it although it's twenty one verses mm-hmm. that's more or less what's what's happening here. Well, that's a pretty pretty and, quick program. Yeah, and so it, <laughs> <laughs> we're done. It seem to be too <laughs> Thanks for listening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next week. See you. See you later, folks. <laughs> um, you know, so that it it really does. You know, I think people could easily read this psalm and, and you know, not get too uh, bothered by what's going on, especially, again, if you're lulled into a false sense of security by the translations, mm. um, which th- that's what happens when whenever 
you're translating from any language to another language. But you know, I'm sensitive to the translation of uh, you know the Hebrew into English here. Um, you know, the the Hebrew is very rich and often mysterious, and so you may have a material in the original Hebrew that is very complex, very rich, very mysterious. And ultimately, the translator has to choose a word or a, a phrase, and you know they by doing that they sort of they diffuse all of the tension in the actual original text mm. because they're resolving the the tension, they're resolving the difficulties in favor of one possible resolution, one possible translation, and really the original um, may have a whole plethora of you know, possible translations mm-hmm. that, you know, the translator has to struggle with. So, um, you know, if, you, if you're just using a translation here, you could very easily be lulled into a sense that this is a simple sum. Um, you know, th- th- there have been a number of approaches to what's going on here. Um, you know, one approach is that, um, you know, this psalm was intended to be really uh, a prayer that, you know, either was actually said historically um, at a time uh, when people were facing trouble, and it was intended to be used in the, in the future, meaning David was writing this psalm as a prayer that people would say when they were about to face uh, tremendous difficulties, let's say a, a battle or someone attacking them. And uh, so the psalm was basically a prayer, um, you know, expressing hope that they would be delivered. Um, and that's the general theme of the psalm according to that point of view. Mm-hmm. The other point of view would be that, no, it was not intended to be a prayer that was said uh, in anticipation of difficulties, but it would be a prayer that was meant to be recited after the deliverance, meaning after we've been delivered from a, an attack, from a battle, from a war, from persecution, then we would thank God in this psalm. This is a psalm thanking God for, uh, you know, rescuing us. Um, probably a better approach would be um, that, in fact, both are going on, in a sense, mm-hmm. that the prayer um, is um, said, it's a psalm that's that's ultimately supposed to be um, a thanksgiving psalm, thanking God for a deliverance, thanking God for um, a salvation that has occurred, but at the same time realizing that this is not the end of our troubles and that, uh, you know, in the face of future difficulties, um, it's a prayer, you know, requesting and, mm. and, and asking that God save us in the future as well. Um, now, the, the $64,000 question Oh, just before I get into that, mm. you know, you mentioned, and it's it's a good point, that, you know, some commentaries um, say that this psalm um, was really supposed to be connected to the 10th psalm, mm. um, and actually the Septuagint um, has them connected, um, and, and I think some other versions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, one reason is that... It, if you read it in Hebrew, you'll see that there seems to be some kind of alphabetical acrostic where some of the verses, you know, begin with the first letter of the alphabet yep. and then and, – and that doesn't continue all the way through in, in chapter 9. And so, it seems that it, it looks like it possibly connects to chapter 10. Mm-hmm. Another reason is that almost all the psalms have a superscription, uh, sort of an introduction to the psalm. 
And it's interesting that, that many Christian versions of the book of Psalms don't count that superscription as a verse as itself. A verse. Yeah, that's right. Right, And that's why there is a difference in the pagination between mm. Jewish and Christian versions of the Psalms. So, many Psalms, as most, have that kind of a superscription, like a Psalm of David, a Song of David, you know, to the conductor on a certain instrument. Um, Psalm 10 is the only one between uh, Psalm 3 and Psalm 32 without a superscription. Mm. And so, some people suggest that um, it really came as a follow-through, as a conclusion of verse nine, chapter 9, but, uh, you know, most people do not see that, um, you know, as compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, really, uh, and I, I hope I'm not going to drive you or anyone else crazy with this analysis, <laughs> but the real, and, and it's hard to really do this, uh, you know, without access to the Hebrew. I'll try and make it as user-friendly as possible. But um, the, it's the problem is the first verse here, or the superscription. Mm. Um, everything else really in the psalm is pretty straightforward, and there's not much difficulty, you know. Right, but uh, taking those, uh, the overviews that you, that you gave us, um, how then is it related to uh, the death of a son? Well, and that's the problem, meaning that it, it may not even be talking about the death of a son. Um, the first word here in Hebrew is pretty straightforward. Lamnatseach means to the conductor. Now, the next two words are the problem words in Hebrew. Mm. And um, the, the third word, um, labain, mm. labain um, you know, that means to the son, mm-hmm. to a son or to the son. could be either one. Um, although, as we know, um, you know, things are never that simple. And the more difficult word is the previous word, um, al-mut. Mm. Okay, now, what's the problem? <laughs> the problem is that um, traditional Jewish sources are not clear whether this is one or two words. Because we do see places in the scriptures where it is clearly written as one word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, some people read this as lamnatseach, to the conductor, and then almut, let's say for, for, for argument's sake, we'll keep it at that, whatever that means, labain, and then to the son, or to a son, and then mizmor la david, a song, a psalm of David. Um, these words themselves are just, first of all, they're hard to translate. Mm-hmm. What does it mean? Um, let's say it means, um, let's take it at the simplest level. Um, al-mut, uh, regarding or on the death of a son, a song to David. So, the question would be, what son is it referring to? Mm. Who is it referring to? And then, if it's referring to a son, what does that have to do with all this, you know, mm. attacks and fighting and war and, and thanksgiving? What is, what's going on here? Um, and, and so, and if it reads as one word, almut, almot, almut, it's not clear even how you read it, what does that mean? Um, and the word labain itself, you know, Hebrew is sort of flexible and it's very close to the word um, in terms of the consonants here of Lavan, of white. Mm-hmm. Um, now, let's just back up for a second and just recapitulate what the previous word might mean. Almut um, has a, a number of possible uh, directions it can go. 
um, first of all, it's related to the word olam, which means world or eternity yep. or forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's related to the word elame, which means youth or young person. Um, so all of these possible words get tossed into the mix by the commentaries. And I'm, I'm going to try to summarize um, sort of, uh, you know, the, uh, 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 some of the suggestions that are offered in the traditional commentaries. Some of them seem very far-fetched and we don't have to take them ser- that seriously in terms of our program. But I'd like to try to at least um, run with one or two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and it's, re- it's really what makes this psalm so incredibly um, complex. Um, one thing, you know, it's very interesting. You know, people who study the Bible, um, the Tanakh with the classical Jewish commentaries knows that, know that the, the go-to commentary is always Rashi. Yeah. <clears throat> Rashi written about a thousand years ago in France. Mm. And, you know, he wrote a commentary to the entire Bible, basically. And uh, he's very terse. He's very, um, you know, he, he's, he tries very hard to give you the simple meaning of the text. What's fascinating here is that Rashi juggles and, and, uh, and throws out at least seven different possible interpretations of this. Now, that's very, very, very unusual. I mean... Just for Rashi to suggest two possibilities or three, it makes you wonder, well, what's, what's wrong with that one? What's wrong with – right, if he has to suggest a second interpretation, what's wrong with the first possibility? Mm-hmm. But to have seven possible uh, interpretations, you see one thing. You see that Rashi was really struggling with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and aside from the seven possible approaches of Rashi, there are a whole bunch more that are suggested by other people. So, uh, if, if you think it's all right, um, Please. I'll try to very, very quickly run through these um, and explain maybe a little bit about where they're coming from. So, and not in any particular order, but Rashi first deals with the possibility that um, uh, this is speaking about the death of a son, and he tries to identify who this son might be, and he suggests that it's speaking about the death of, of Shalom. Mm. Um now, and look, again, that, that's, that's, that's the first uh, the thought that came to my head uh, when I read the psalm and I went back and I had a look at the opening of the psalm and I thought, well, if I have to put two and two together, the first thing that comes to my mind is Absalom. But when I'm looking uh, in, my, uh, in the study bubbles that I just had in front of me, nowhere uh, is this mentioned. And I thought, well, that's curious, but please continue. <laughs> well, again, one of the problems would be I think, you know, as we pointed out with the, with the possibility that's talking about Jesus, I mean, where is the follow-through here? Meaning mm. that it doesn't sound like the rest of the psalm is dealing with the death of, of Shalom. You know, it sounds like it's primarily focusing on, you know, uh, either David's, you know, conflicts and wars with enemies. Um, and it doesn't sound like it's speaking about, you know, the, the, the you know conflicts with his son. It seems to be foreign enemies, and mm-hmm. it seems to be... It, what's interesting is that the text switches over from an individual's struggle with enemies. It's clearly talking about a national uh, fight. Mm. Um, so it doesn't. It's, yeah, it seems right. hard. Yeah. Right. It's, it would seem hard to say that the that's the whole context of this psalm is focusing. It's, it's a psalm that's dealing with the death of Avshalom. Um, there's another approach that's offered, not by Rashi, by the way, by by others. 
that it's dealing with the death of his infant son that was born to Bathsheba. Um, oh, you know, right. after he had his affair with Bathsheba, so God, you know, told him that one of the possible uh, outcomes and and you know is going to be that he's going to lose the son. Mm. Uh, you know, it's going to be the product of this relationship, and that that son actually dies. I think after seven days, mm. um, and it throws David into tremendous mourning. Um, and there actually there's an approach which takes this possibility uh, very seriously. I believe it's the Alshech. Mm. Who takes this approach that this is, this, and he actually he manages to interpret, and that's what you have to do, by the way. If you any person that suggests any of these, uh, you know, uh, potential, uh, you know, people that this is referring to, is going to have to sort of reconstruct the whole psalm in terms of that mm. identity. So you know, so the people that, that want to go with the Avshalom, uh, you know, option, they're going to have to somehow take every verse and mm. show how it connects to Avshalom. I'm not going to do that now. Um, the Alshech does that with, uh, you know, taking this psalm as focusing on the death of David's instant infant baby, the, this, this little infant that dies. Mm-hmm. Um, Rashi's second option is very weird. I mean, very, very weird. Um, he, he himself rejects it quickly. He says that Lavan here, Laben, you know, the son or a son, mm-hmm. if you read it backwards, it sounds like something, you know, from the Beatles, you're going to play it backwards. <laughs> and what does it sound like? If you take the Laben backwards, it, he says it spells out Naval. And, uh, ah, who was the, uh, the husband of um, uh, Abigail. Abigail, yeah. yeah. And uh, th- th- David and he didn't hit it off. Um, so, you know, <laughs> but again, it seems far-fetched, to, you know, why would, you know, this psalm hide his name in that kind of a way? Um, and again, it's hard to squeeze him into the whole narrative mm. here. Um, now, Rashi does bring up another way of reading this word, al-mut, and, um, you know, he says that you can read it as one word, as um, al-mut, you know, dealing with youth, youthfulness. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to get back to w- what that would mean in the context of the whole psalm. Okay. Um, another option that Rashi suggests, and this is close to the way he really will end up reading the psalm, is that the whole psalm is really somehow um, dedicated to the um, eradication of Esau and Amalek in the history of the Jewish people. Um, and he actually finds interesting textual clues um, in this psalm for this approach. Um, he doesn't really ultimately go with it, but he goes with something very similar. And his approach basically is, is fifth of the seven, is that <clears throat> this psalm speaks, he says, of the future. It's a psalm that's really speaking about the future mm-hmm. when he says childhood and youth the childhood and youthfulness of Israel, like the immaturity, the childhood, the youthfulness of Israel, and that's based upon the second word here, to the conductor almus, right, from the word youthfulness, mm-hmm. childishness, he says will mature and will turn white. That's the third word, laben, he reads as lavan. So, he reads the first three words as lamatseach to the conductor, almut, youthfulness, lavan becomes white. Now, that's a reading which I don't think any non-Jewish translation is going to have in five million years. Um, but you can easily 
uh, defended by these these words. So Rashi says that what's happening in this psalm is that when the the childhood of Israel is going to mature, meaning in the future, and what does it mean mature? So mature is white, meaning that we will the youthfulness will turn white, the white of old age. And what will happen in the future is that the righteousness of Israel is going to be revealed at that time, and salvation will ultimately come with the destruction of Israel's implacable historical enemies like Esau, Edom, uh, and Amalek. Mm -hmm. Um, So, he says that that's what's going on in this psalm. So, initially that sounds rather obscure, but what what you're saying is that uh, it's permissible, at least Rashi thought so and was persuaded by it, it's permissible in Hebrew. Well, for two reasons. I think that what's, what's compelling for Rashi is two things. Number one, the Hebrew words here, again, are so obscure and difficult to translate. Hmm. Um, the simple ones that, that, you know, often translations jump to, like, you know, uh, about the death of a son, well, it's not so simple that it means that because it's not clear whether the word al-mut is one word or two words. Because, again, we have places in the scripture where it's, it's clearly one word. Um, and it could be one word here as well. And laben, you know, could be read, could be read as lavan. Um, and then what Rashi, I think, is drawn to is that the context of this psalm, which speaks about the overcoming of enemies and the praising of God and, you know, God ultimately being lifted up in praise, mm. he sees that as, um, you know, ultimately uh, something which is, um, you know, speaking about the historical future of the redemption of Israel and the spreading of the knowledge of God to the entire world, you know, the ultimate redemption of Israel, the the, the fact that Israel is going to be, um, you know, will, will become righteous in the future. I mean, all the themes of the Bible that come up clearly elsewhere, Rashi sees connected to this chapter, and he actually finds many um, verbal, many textual clues in the psalm itself. Um, for example, it speaks about God's throne becoming completed, um, and there's a verse in Exodus which speaks about um, you know God's throne not being completed until the downfall of Amalek, which is from Esau. I mean, there are many things which draw Rashi to this reading of the psalm. Um, but wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> and what I find puzzling is that instead of stopping there, meaning you think that he would stop once he hit, you know, the sweet note, the sweet mm-hmm. spot, he goes on and he says that the word laben sounds like the word lahavin, which in Hebrew means to understand uh, or to, to, to comprehend. And so, he suggests that one way of reading lamnatseach almut lavan um, is that it's very interesting that if you go to Psalm 46 verse 1, there you have an instrument that's called, actually, the instrument is called Alamot. Ah. It's actually called Alamot. And so he says that this is a this is the to the to the choir master, to the conductor, Alamot, which means on this instrument called the Alamot, mm-hmm. Lavain in order to cause understanding. Meaning he's saying that this is part of the introduction to the psalm, that it was given to the conductor on this particular instrument in order to help others understand the theme of the psalm. Mm-hmm. So, certainly a plausible reading. 
um, actually it's it's very neat and it's it's tidy. And then finally, Rashi his his last suggestion. And again, why does he throw this in at the end? He says this is to the choir master Lamnatzeach, the first word, Almot mm-hmm. regarding the death, which is again the way most Christians I think take this psalm, Almot uh, about the death, and he says it's about the death not of Laben the son, but a person who's named Laben. Oh, he says there was he says there was sure. a there was a king. That this king's name was Laben, or Laben, mm-hmm. and so this is a song uh, um, about the death of this implacable foe of David named Laben, right. and he, he says that the only problem with this explanation is that you don't find this name anywhere else in the Tanakh. Meaning that yeah, who is this that makes it hard. enemy? But he says that to defend this, he says that the truth is. There are many, many people whose names you only find once in the Tanakh. Mm-hmm. So, he said it's not so strange, and this would be the one place his name appears. Um, and then again, what it has going for it is that it does seem to be that in this psalm, David is speaking about, you know, again, the problem with speaking about the death of Avshalom or the death, especially the death of his infant son, um, you know, is that it doesn't seem that for the next 20 verses, David is concerned with fighting against them. Um, but he does seem to be fighting against some, um, you know, implacable foe that's causing, you know, an existential threat to his, you know, kingship and especially to the survival of the Jewish people. And so, the idea that there was this horrible tyrant named Laban that was, you know, causing grief to him and the people of Israel. And the rest of the psalm describes how he overcomes this threat, and mm. we have to praise God for that. So, it's not so crazy. You know, it's not the nuttiest I, idea. You know, that that's uh, perhaps one of the easier approaches. I, I would have thought it's very uh, – we can tuck that one away and, and continue reading, and uh, it doesn't require too much uh, bending of the mind to make it work. No, not too much gymnastics there and too much uh, twisting. Mm. Um, now, <laughs> one of the, um, I think, most compelling – readings of this chapter, and it really, you'll find this in a lot of the Jewish approaches to this psalm. Hold on to your hats. (laughs) (laughs) This is, it's going to sound a little bit stretched, but it actually, uh, there's a lot going for this one, Mm -hmm. Um, is that, uh, here again, what is this idea of uh, a psalm about the death, right? Al-mut, we can read as about the death. Laban, right? So, again, the previous idea was that it's a person named Laban. Mm-hmm. We've had other people saying, you know, it means about a son. Um, we had already the idea that it can refer to the idea of bina, understanding, that it's a, a psalm that was supposed to help us understand certain things. But um, two of the greatest commentaries, and actually um, other people mention this as well, but the main proponent of this is someone named the Radak, Rabbi David mm-hmm. Kimchi. Actually, he was a great uh, polemicist against Christians in the Middle Ages. Um, He says that the best reading of this psalm is that the word laben here derives from the word in Hebrew, bain. Um, So, ben and bain are very similar. And bain means between. And he says that it refers to, believe it or not, Goliath. 
Why? Because, and it's hard again, you'll never get this from an English translation, but in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23, Goliath is referred to as Ish Habenayim, the man who was between them. Because again, the word bain means between. So that's the tie-in to the first verse, that this is a psalm about the death of the man who was between, Laben, and they read this as about Goliath. And when you read 1 Samuel 17, there are tremendous parallels to what's going on in the, the body of Psalm 9, meaning that what happens in, in, in Psalm 9 is in 1 Samuel 17 mm. yeah. is that David, um, you know, kills this horrible enemy. Um, but then there is really not just the death of this, um, you know, this giant, but there's also a national uh, victory over the Philistines. The Philistine army flees. So, you see that going on in Psalm 9. You see that it seems to be speaking about, um, you know, one person's fight, and then the reverses that speak, that seems to be speaking about a national battle. I can see uh, the parallel between the story uh, in uh, of David and Goliath and uh, Psalm 9, but it is difficult to uh, accept what seems to be a stretch. And did you say it was uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 23? Yes, Yes. It says, uh, so, so at least in the English, uh, then as he talked with them, David's talking uh, with uh, uh, his brothers, I think, uh, there was a champion, the Philistine of Gat, Goliath by name, Goliath, coming up uh, from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words that David heard them. Right. So, the, 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 it's a hard word, it's a hard verse to translate, but the, the Hebrew is Ish HaBenayim. Mm-hmm. And literally, it means the man between them, meaning that there was, um, uh, you know, he was between mm. the, the, the Jewish people and the Philistine army. Right. And he was, um, okay. But, yeah. And, but many, many translations don't render the, that phrase like that. Mm. Um, so, even in my, uh, I have, let's say I'm going through the, uh, the, the art scroll, Stone Tanakh. Yep. So, they um, render that passage um, in the following way. They have it as, um, as he was speaking to them, behold, the champion went forth from the Philistine battalions. And I think they're they're rendering the word Ishbenayim as the champion. Mm -hmm. So, I I don't know if, you know, it's, it's a sort of vague and... Difficult were a phrase to translate, um, but the Radak is taking it as you know this idea of being between, and the beginning of Psalm nine speaks about the death of Laben, and Laben again you know we don't know what it means. Does it mean the sun? Does it mean white? Does it mean um, you know a person with that name? Or does it mean to understand? Or Radak is saying no. It, it's it's sort of hinting at, and again, it's, this is not a clear reference, mm. but I think, again, in the same way that Rashi sort of has a uh, vague way, a, a sort of almost a forced way of reading the introduction to this psalm, I think what drives him is his sense that that's what's going on in this psalm, that it's a sort of messianic psalm that is, um, you know, dealing with the future redemption of Israel, mm-hmm. and I think the Radak basically says the same thing, that the context of this psalm 
he sees tremendous parallels to 1 Samuel 17, where, um, you know, it's not just, you know, defeating Goliath and the Philistines, but there's sort of this, you know, um, debate, this this back and forth between David and Goliath, mm. where David says, you know, you've come upon us, um, you come up against us with, you know, swords and spears and weapons, you know, but uh, I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Mm. And so, that comes out very clearly in Psalm 9, where the victory is, you know, in the name of the Lord. And, you know, the, the singer of this psalm doesn't just leave it as a victory against our enemies, but it's very clear that, you know, there has to be an acknowledgement of where the victory is coming from. We mm-hmm. give thanks to God. We're not, we're not taking, you know, uh, refuge in our own might and our own strength. And um, so, David here, in this psalm, he, you know, praises God, uh, and he thanks God for his victory um, and the nation's victory. And then what's interesting is that what happens in the psalm ultimately is that the psalm moves on from there. Um, You know, there is, you know, the beginning of the psalm is really focusing on these victories against foes and enemies and dangers. But then David really sort of shifts to be looking towards, you know, what about the life of the ordinary Jew, the impoverished Jew, the poor Jew, the Mm. humble Jew, the simple people that, you know, their struggle is not against these massive armies. They may be struggling to, you you know, buy food for their family or they may be struggling to, you know, you know, somehow just make it in life. And so, David speaks about the fact that God will be there for them as well. And, um, you know, so he sort of, the psalm, and many psalms will do this, many passages in the Bible do this, they, they have sort of a primary focus, and then the focus sort of shifts to something else. And so, David really says that God dwells, not just on the battlefield, but God dwells among the people of Israel. He dwells in Zion. And he concludes, the whole psalm concludes with a prayer against future enemies um, who think of themselves as more than they really are, right? I mean, you have Goliath who sees himself as a superhuman, Mm. and he probably, not only did he think of himself as large physically, he probably thought of himself as larger than life, Mm -hmm. and maybe even having some divinity. So, David says at the end of the psalm, look, you future enemies, you know, you think you're hot stuff, you think you're bigger than, you know, you really are, you know, God will show you that at the end you're just a frail human being, you're just flesh and bones. Um, and so, there are commentaries that try to, you know, find, and again, if we had more time, we can go through each verse of the psalm and show how, you know, these commentaries will try to find the textual clues in each verse to their particular approach to understanding the psalm. Um, I mentioned already before the Alshech who takes this as the death of David's infant son. Um, uh, there are some more obscure approaches. Um, uh, one of these sees, um, uh, I think I might have mentioned this already, I mentioned this, that it's talking about the psalm being played on an instrument or it's the psalm is will be on a particular melody that's called Alamos. Um, you find this, I mentioned Psalm 46.1, but it's also in First Chronicles 15.20, um, this particular instrument or a, a particular tune. Um, 
If I could, I'd like to share what I find to be maybe not the most compelling, but the most beautiful approach to the psalm. Please. Um, and it's from Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch. So he was a uh, German. I think he lived in the 19th century. Um, and he takes off on the idea, I, I mentioned this before, that the word al-mut, which is that mysterious word in the, in the superscription or in the first verse, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it's really related etymologically to the word olamit. Um, olam is world or yes. eternal. And so, what, what Hirsch basically says is that um, this is a psalm dealing with uh, eternal ideas. Um, and he says it's an eternal psalm dedicated to the sun. But for Hirsch, the sun is God's son, Israel. Mm-hmm. Right? We see in the scripture um, in, psalm, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Israel is God's son, his firstborn. Mm-hmm. So, Hirsch suggests that this is a psalm dealing with eternal ideas, and it's dedicated to the sun, Laben, um, which is Israel, and you know Israel's special relationship with God. And what he does is very interesting. He sort of makes a, a goulash of all the other <laughs> interpretations, and he says, all of them are right. He says, because these are just all examples of you know, our difficulties and our foes and our enemies. And, you know, so all of the suggestions. So it's a multi-allegorical approach. Yeah. He sort of says, you know what, you're all right. It's not one or the other because he says that ultimately, you know, our history has been one of struggle. Mm -hmm. So whether it's against Esau, whether it's against Amalek, whether it's against, you know, Goliath, whether it's against this unknown enemy called Laban, whether it's against internal enemies like Avshalom, mm. whether it's against, you know, Naval, whoever it's against, you know, these are eternal um, battles. And ultimately what the psalm says is that God will judge them. And what Hirsch says is that Israel will ultimately survive eternally because he says Israel is al-mut. Literally, it means over death or above death. Right, okay. Meaning that because Israel, he says, lives in both worlds. And again, he takes the word al-mut here as olamot, worlds. Now, that's so interesting. That's I, I have another translation that's, uh, that says over the death of, of the okay. sun. Mm-hmm. So, he's, he's using this. I mean, he's sort of… A fluid and and almost he, he's almost uh, musical with the way he puts this together, and he says that what's what's being spoken of here is that we have these uh, throughout our history these um, these ongoing battles and these implacable foes, but ultimately he says Israel will survive eternally, which again is the word olam eternally, and he says because he takes it almost as a triple entendre. Because we are al-mut, which means over death. And he goes further, not just al-mut, but olamot, worlds in the plural, because we live in both worlds, both in this world and the next world. Mm-hmm. And he says that furthermore, he, another sort of take on the same word, he says, so therefore Israel maintains al-mut, again from the word elem, which means youthfulness, he says Israel maintains sort of an eternal youthfulness and vigor. Why? Because we are God's son and God's young son. 
And he, he, one last thing he says, and with this I will shut up. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. He says that almut has another meaning, which I didn't even mention yet. The word elem, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, in, in Christian worlds, you know, the, the famous passage in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, um, you know, hineha mm-hmm. alma hara, yep. the alma, the young girl will be pregnant or is pregnant, mm. and it's translated, you know, as a virgin um, in Christian circles. Um, but the word alma really is related to the word la'alem, which means to conceal or to be hidden. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, a, a, a young girl, her sexual history is hidden. You don't see it. Mm. Um, you don't know uh, about a young girl's, you know, you can't tell by looking at her. Mm. Um, so, what, what Hirsch says here is that the word almut is related to the word la'alem, which means concealed or secret. And he says that God is ultimately behind the scenes of world history, meaning that, that there's a concealed hand, a hidden hidden hand that moves history, that moves what's happening throughout history, making sure that Israel will overcome all odds and ultimately survive. So, um, Hirsch basically takes almost everything we've said previously, he rolls it all together in one, uh, I think, beautiful package. And, you know, he sees this similarly to Rashi, that it's an, uh, you know, um, it, it's, a, it's a historical psalm that really looks towards the future, and it looks towards the sweep of Jewish history in terms of looking at uh, the ongoing history of Israel um, in terms of our struggles. Ultimately, all will work out, and he somehow weaves in all the different, or almost all the different interpretations of what these words uh, might mean. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, you know, if you didn't have those first three words or first four words in this psalm, you know, it looks pretty straightforward and simple. And when you struggle with trying to uh, untangle what actually is meant by these words, almut laben, uh, you know, you can... <laughs> you you can use a, a nice vacation after you struggle with this, and then it becomes um, a Rubik's cube. <laughs> yeah, it's, so it's, it's definitely now with yeah. with that aside, though, Michael, there are just a curious uh, handful of um, uh, points. Can can I just ask you a couple of questions in regards? Yeah. I probably won't know the answer, but... (laughs) (laughs) Verse 17. I just found it really curious um, because I I don't know that we see a structure like this uh, very often, if at all. Uh, The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in in the work of his own hands. And then we have a standalone word. Do you have a comment there? You mean Selah? Oh, no, reflect but, on this. Yeah, reflect on this. Reflect on this. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Higayon. Meditation. Um, reflect on this. Think about this. It's interesting, by the way, because the word "sela" itself, yeah, according to many commentaries, is a word indicating that there's a pause here, yep. and you should think about this. So it's almost redundant to have Higayon and then "sela." You don't need both. Um, 
So it, it's interesting. I mean, two two I, pauses together make a longer pause, but <laughs> <laughs> but but it's interesting because is this? Uh, but the other thing that I'm I'm curious about, and just off the top of your head, does something like this appear uh, often, if at all, elsewhere in the Psalms? You mean this kind of double um, usage of those concepts of reflection and cell? I mean the the standalone of Higayon. Uh, uh, I you know what I. I don't recall offhand. I, I off the top I, of my know, head, I think it, it's. I don't know that it's an anomaly, but it. Uh, but I can't think of another place where it's, it's used not like common. this. And therefore, it's I thought common. it was curious. But, um, but I, what I find curious is not just the word he got young, but that it's followed up by a very similar word, "sella." Mm. Um, and the question would be, what? It, why exactly do we have to ponder this? I mean, I think that one of. The, I mean, look. We often don't see how, you know, the plans of the wicked will, at the end, you know, do them in. Mm. You know, most often in life, you know, we see the wicked succeeding. And that's why, you know, one of the themes that comes up in some of the Psalms is, you know, the question of why the wicked seem to prosper. Mm. Um, you know, and so, we often see wicked people running rampant in the world and, you know, f- and fulfilling their wicked designs mm. and, you know, so here it's saying that no, you know what? They're going to really ultimately fall into the traps that they've made. And so it may be saying, think about this. And maybe if you meditate, you might be able to actually see that this is actually what happens. You know, and but it maybe it requires some thought and some, some, you know, some real. Uh, you know, discernment, because we don't see it readily. But after that uh, meditation, that consideration, uh, the point is made very bluntly in the following verse 18, that basically, at least in the English, the wicked can go to hell, (laughs) is what David's saying. But uh, obviously in the Hebrew, uh, they shall be turned uh, to Sheol. The truth is that when you go through the entire Tanakh, you have a whole slew of words that are used for both death and for the afterlife, mm. um, you know, the pit, and, uh, you know, the, 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 there are a whole bunch of words. And it's not, I would say, 100% clear if it's referring simply to death or if it's referring to the afterlife in some way. But it, I think what's interesting is that verse 17, uh, as we pointed out, as you mentioned, sort of puts a big question mark on how the world, you know, is judged. Mm. Um, meaning that it, it's saying, you know, God sort of, it, it, it's stating that God does execute judgment and, you know, through the way he runs the world and the wicked will be entrapped. Mm. Think about this because, you know, you won't probably see it so easily. But then after that big question mark, you know, David writes in very, very clear terms, you know, this is what's going to happen to these guys. Mm. You know, you might have to think about it, but, you know, the scripture here, the revelation you know, coming through the Holy Spirit of God is telling us this is what's going to happen. Mm. You know, so you might have your own difficulties, you know, sort of squaring up the fate of the wicked. Um, because in this world, you don't always see it happening. Um, but David is saying, rest assured, they're going to get their just desserts. Yeah. And then he goes on to say, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. And I suppose that's the expectation of, ju- of justice. And salvation, right? Mm-hmm. That that they will be taken care of, um, that there'll be some uh, exactly justice that you know they suffered for so long. It's almost the flip side of the previous verses that you know the wicked seem to get a, a free ride and they seem to be running rampant in the world, and we're told that they are going to get their just desserts. And so, 
verse 19 is saying that those people who've been afflicted and persecuted, um, you know, maybe they will see um, some light in their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, there it is. Goodness. Is there anything else that you'd like to highlight before we wrap well, up? Well, you know what? Uh, um, it would be great to be able to go through all 20 verses and show why each of the commentaries um, you know, is able to read their approach into the actual text, but it would take us way, way too long. So I think it's just enough for the listeners to, you know, be aware, just alerted to the fact mm. that you know uh, this is what the commentaries will do. I mean, that they're not just asserting, uh, you know, an interpretation at the beginning of the psalm. They, you know, they are careful. Uh, commentaries, they're careful readers of the mm. Bible, and they are able to somehow carry their proposal all the way through in each verse. Now, when you go through them, you know, some of them will be more compelling than others. Some of them will see like, seem like they're stretching the verse to fit their interpretation, mm-hmm. but they each have, you know, an approach which has something that, you know, uh, you know seems to have something to say for it. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, the fact that you have so many different interpretations, you know, this to me is always, uh, you know, one of the most difficult but beautiful parts of the Tanakh. You know, you have so many places where we're not just on clear ground. You know, um, it's interesting that in the famous story of Moses hitting the rock, um, you know, the commentaries there struggle tremendously to figure out what did he do that was wrong? Um, it seems simple on the surface, mm. and yet, you know, there are at least a dozen different, very, very compelling interpretations. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, the question at the end of the day is, you know, something must not be clear here if brilliant uh, minds are able to see this story so differently. And, uh, you know, the same thing here that the fact that you have the first three words of this psalm that are really um, <laughs> just so pregnant with potential mm. meaning and you know and so murky in terms of it's being uh, a difficult mysterious complicated um, you know phrase that just it, it it does lend itself to so many different possible interpretations that's why in some ways this psalm, uh, you know, is is just so incredibly difficult. Um, but I hope that we set, shed some light on it. Um, well, what you know, what you've done is you've you've um, put forth to the listeners uh, the options of of adopting a, a particular perspective and then applying that as they read through the psalm, and they can do that uh, for for all of those possibilities if they so desire. So uh, that's very valuable and, and so many, in fact the vast majority of those perspectives I was unaware of and so I look forward to reading back through it again thank you my friend thank you for doing that we're going to continue next week in Psalm chapter 10 God willing next week or the week after <laughs> or the week after <laughs> one of these weeks <laughs> Rabbi Michael Skoback of Jews for Judaism in Canada that's uh, the website JewsforJudaism.ca that's Jews for Judaism Thank you, my friend. And in the meantime, dear listeners, be blessed, be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.